On June 8, 1972, photojournalist Nick Oot took a picture that changed the course of history. It shows a naked nine-year-old girl running down a road, screaming and crying. Her skin is falling away due to third-degree burns covering her body. She's surrounded by soldiers and other crying children. There's fire and smoke in the background. Moments before the picture was taken, South Vietnamese troops accidentally dropped napalm bombs over their own civilian village in Trong Bong, Vietnam. It's been said the picture helped bring an end to the Vietnam War. But Nick Oot wasn't the only photojournalist trying to influence public opinion by documenting the terrors of war. Two years before he took the photo, now known as Napalm Girl, two others traveled deep into the heart of the conflict and never returned. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet two photojournalists, Sean Flynn and Dana Stone. After arriving in Cambodia in 1970 to cover the Vietnam War, they rode their motorcycles into the epicenter of a hostile communist takeover. While several of their photos made history, Sean and Dana's ending has likely been lost to it. It's March 1970. President Richard Nixon is in the White House. The Vietnam War has been raging for the past 16 years. Over 1 million Americans have been randomly selected by the draft and sent some 8,000 miles overseas, ripped from their families and friends. In Vietnam, the war has spilled into Cambodia, where the communist organization known as the Viet Cong has established sanctuaries in the jungle. According to official reports, American troops have yet to set foot on Cambodian soil. But recent rumors say otherwise. The United States military may have soldiers pursuing the Viet Cong and bombs in the air ready to strike. Journalists flood the Cambodian capital of Phnom Penh to find out the truth. Among them are two American photojournalists, Sean Flynn and Dana Stone. Dana is 30, with curly sandy hair, freckles, and glasses. He comes from a modest middle-class family. He's married. His wife, Louise, has been tagging along with her husband while he covers the war. Sean is 28, two years younger. He's tall and blonde with a crooked smile and movie star good looks that he inherited from his parents, Errol Flynn and Lily Demita. They're both Hollywood actors. Sean has an apartment back in France, and he likes to hunt big game in Africa for sport. He's well-traveled, used to living lavishly, and a bit of a player when it comes to women. He tried to follow his parents' footsteps and go into acting, but he didn't care for the world of pretend. He wanted real adventure. So, when a publication titled Paris Match offered to fly Sean to Vietnam to write a story called Playboy Goes to War, he jumped at the opportunity. The piece did so well, he kept getting more offers for work. Sean and Dana met four years ago while working for United Press International in Vietnam. They made 10, maybe 20 US dollars for each photograph they took, 
about 86 to 172 US dollar today. Hardly enough to justify the dangers and emotional toll of their jobs. On any given day, medvac choppers might drop Sean into the middle of firefights. With bullets flying past his head and people dying all around him, he would stand there, taking pictures. As he put it, like a tourist on the Place de la Concorde. One of Dana's first jobs was photographing American soldiers as they tortured Vietnamese prisoners. He still has permanent scars from the experience. He told his wife he wanted to leave Vietnam after that, and he would have if he had the money to. But he didn't. And even if he finds his job hard to stomach, he's good at it. They're both living in Cambodia now, and Dana is working on one of the first ever Vietnam War documentaries. They're staying with other journalists at a sanctuary called the Hotel Royale in the middle of Phnom Penh. It's a place where members of the press lead relatively comfortable lives. They drink wine, lounge by the pool, get chauffeured around in expensive cars. Privileges not available to soldiers or many locals. In no small way, the sanctuary represents the type of capitalistic excess that communist forces are fighting against. Most mornings, the journalists are driven to an area known as Parrot's Beak, the small corner of Cambodia that juts out into Vietnam. From their side of the border, they watch American bombs fall on communist soldiers. It's a constant stream of gore and death. But Sean and Dana want to get closer to the action. At the beginning of April 1970, the men rent bright red motorcycles for a four to five day trip along the Cambodian border. Before leaving, Dana puts on a reversible yellow and green hat and tells his wife that nothing could possibly happen to him because he's too ugly. It's a joke meant to cut through the tension brought on by his decision to go. They both know the risks are incredibly high. A right-wing coup unseated Cambodia's head of state, Prince Sihanouk, just a month prior. The country is now in the midst of a civil war, with the militant and communist Khmer Rouge on one side and the right-wing party on the other. In other words, there's no government to protect journalists. And a run-in with the Khmer Rouge would likely prove fatal because of the guerrilla group's distaste of intellectuals, journalists, and political opponents. On Sunday, April 5th, Louise kisses her husband goodbye and watches Dana and Sean's motorbikes take off through the streets of Phnom Penh. No one knows how they spend the next 24 hours, but on Monday morning, the photojournalists meet with a press tour in Parrot's Beak. They learn that communist guerrillas have ravaged the small town of Chipo and moved on, but they're told about a guerrilla roadblock two miles away. If they can find it, it would be a prime opportunity to snap a photo of the elusive Viet Cong in action. Sean and Dana break away from the group and drive toward the border of Vietnam, but they can't get close enough to get a good shot. They head back to the group and decide they'll try again later. After the press tour wraps up, Sean and Dana visit a local cafe. Two fellow reporters are in the shop as well, Woody Dickerman and Dan Sutherland. Sean and Dana are having a disagreement at a nearby table. To Woody and Dan, it seems lighthearted. Then Dana turns to them and says something along the lines of, can you believe this guy? Referencing Sean. He wants to get us captured. 
This is alarming enough, but eventually Sean and Dana's conversation escalates. It seems like Sean wants to go back to the border and try something different to get closer to the Viet Cong. Woody and Dan don't catch the specifics, but Dana's uninterested in whatever Sean's suggesting. He tells Sean he has a wife. He wants to start a family. It's just too dangerous. Sean gets so fed up that he takes Dana's motorcycle keys and throws them out the window into the mud. Then Sean goes outside and takes off on his bike alone. Dana knows he's headed back to the border. As much as he doesn't want to, he can't let Sean go alone. He reluctantly sets out after his friend. At this point, Woody and Dan are invested in what's happening. After all, Sean Flynn, the celebrity playboy turned war journalist, is kind of his own story here in Southeast Asia. They hop in their Mercedes and tell their driver to follow the two red motorcycles. When Woody and Dan reach the border, everything seems calm. They hop out of their car to take some photos. Some field workers wave for the camera. A handful of Cambodian military men smile for the shots. They can see Sean and Dana. They're maybe just a few dozen yards ahead, closer to the border. Woody walks toward them, but as he does, the energy in the air shifts. All of the Cambodian military trucks in the area suddenly peel out and leave. The chauffeur drives up to Woody and frantically gestures for him to get in the car. The Viet Cong are closing in on the area. There's going to be an ambush. Woody and Dan speed back to the city, but not Sean and Dana. They drive in the opposite direction. It's April 6th, 1970. Night is about to fall and nobody knows where Sean Flynn and Dana Stone went. A group of reporters huddle in the lobby of the Hotel Royale in Phnom Penh, Cambodia to discuss. When Dana's wife Louise walks by their conversation, they argue over who should be the one to tell her. But they ultimately decide no one should say anything. Not until they have more information. The next morning, Louise gets a call from a CBS reporter. They ask her if she'd like to go to the location where Sean and Dana disappeared. Louise is confused. As far as she's concerned, her husband's trip isn't over. Dana and Sean are supposed to be traveling for a few more days. It's not the first time someone has declared Dana missing. While on retainer for United Press International, Dana vanished for six weeks out in the field. Then one day, he stumbled back into the news offices like nothing happened. So Louise chooses to stay calm. An NBC cameraman named Dieter Bellendorf agrees with her. There's no reason to worry yet. Sean and Dana could have driven over the border to Saigon. Maybe they had to drop off film somewhere. There are plenty of benign explanations for where they are. But rumors spread that Sean and Dana were captured by the Viet Cong. Two days after Sean and Dana were last seen, Dieter Bellendorf takes the same stretch of highway they took out towards Parrot's Beak. He also doesn't return. That week, at least 10 other correspondents go missing. It becomes obvious that whatever's happening is not a coincidence. Sean and Dana are most likely in trouble. Still, Louise doesn't give in to her worst fears. There's reason to believe they may still be alive. 
Several civilians near Chipo claim they saw two white men arrested near the border on the same day Sean and Dana were last seen. It's possible they're being held hostage. And if that's the case, where does Luis even begin? Luis may be staying in a sanctuary, but she's still living in the middle of a war zone. She's aware of the horrors happening all around her. Her husband's been covering them for years. Bombs are falling day and night. Death tolls on both sides are climbing by the hour, and so are the number of missing persons. It doesn't matter that her husband's a journalist and not a soldier. Casualties are expected. It's not that Louise is alone in her experience. It's that she's lost in a sea of people who are living through a similar tragedy. Who do you ask for help when it feels like everyone can use some? How do you ask for help? Louise starts by speaking with any journalist at the Hotel Royale with connections in the communist regions of North Vietnam. She asks them to please tell their contacts that Sean and Dana are not soldiers, they're civilians. If they're captured, they should not be treated like military prisoners of war. Not that it would necessarily make a difference. One contact seems willing to cooperate. Word trickles back to Louise that North Vietnam isn't keeping any civilian journalists as prisoners. The contact says the same can't necessarily be said for the Cambodian Khmer Rouge. Louise doesn't know whether she can believe what she's hearing, but the suggestion is enough to make her wonder whether Dana and Sean are still in Cambodia. Louise questions soldiers and journalists returning to Chipo. No one has found any white males dead in the area but some villagers have apparently seen two white men alive imprisoned by local gorillas. It may not be Dana and Sean, but it's hope, and Louise clings to it. According to her, over the next five months, she expects every new telegram, message, and phone call to include news that her husband's okay. None do, but she receives a few promising leads. Sometime in the summer, at a press conference in Phnom Penh, a Viet Cong defector says that he personally saw Sean and Dana in one of their camps. He doesn't elaborate much more than that, though. Afterward, Louise tries to get an interview with the defector. She's forceful when advocating for her needs now. Some may call it pushy, but she knows better. She just learned that no one else is going to do the work for her. She hounds the Central Military Intelligence Center to get access to the man. She knows that that's where he's being kept. Time and time again, they turn her down. But eventually, her persistence pays off. The CMIC grants her an interview. With two interpreters by her side, she gets a confession. It goes something like this. On May 31st, 1970, about two months after Sean and Dana were last seen, the defector and other Viet Cong soldiers received new prisoners at their camp. They were journalists riding red motorcycles, and they were captured on Route 1 at the beginning of April. Here's a description the defector gave of one of the prisoners. Quote, he had light yellow-brown mustache and long sideburns. His hair was long, down to his collar, he was very big, but his stomach was not very big. I heard he was American, end quote. It sounds just like Sean Flynn. 
he'd spent months growing out his hair and sideburns. At six foot three, he would have towered over most of the men in Vietnam and Cambodia, who stood at about five foot two on average. If the defector told the Central Military Intelligence Center the truth, Luis now knew two important pieces of information. First, she'd been fed false information. The Viet Cong were keeping civilians as prisoners of war. And second, Sean and Dana were alive almost eight weeks after they disappeared. Unfortunately, there's not much Luis can do. She's in a war zone. She can't just put together a search party and waltz into an enemy camp. Plus, they could have been moved countless times by this point. She doesn't know where they are, let alone how they are. Even if she could gather a team of soldiers together for a rescue mission, which she doesn't have the authority to do, it would take serious financing and months of strategizing to pull off. Not to mention the risks for anyone involved. I can't imagine how frustrating that must be to feel so close and to be so powerless. Then in late August, 1970, Luis hears a story about a group of French journalists and a Dutch explorer who were taken prisoner by the Viet Cong and were later released. Luis learns the Dutch explorer's name was Johannes Dinesfeld, and he had since gone to Thailand. So she books a flight to meet with him. The trip could lead to nothing, but she's hoping he might have valuable insight to the inner workings of life in captivity, or at the very least, be able to tell her that being a prisoner of war isn't as bad as her worst fears. She never expects the four words that come out of his mouth. Your husband is alive. He says the words with such certainty she wants to trust them. According to Johannes, he spent time with Dana while in captivity. They were being treated at a communist field hospital in Cambodia. Dana was in bad shape. He'd been wounded so badly he needed to be carried around in a rescue basket. The only silver lining was they didn't seem to be the type of wounds that would kill someone. Now, Luis has hit enough dead ends. At this point, she needs more proof that the man Johannes spent time with was actually her husband. So she asks if he ever saw Dana naked because he had a tattoo that could easily identify him. Johannes never saw Dana naked, but he did see his feet. He remembers because they were disproportionate to his body, comically wide and short. Their captors even used to mock Dana because of them. It may sound silly, but for Louise, the news comes like a sucker punch to the gut. Dana did have odd shaped feet, they were as good an identifier as any tattoo, if not better. Johannes met her husband. Excitement courses through her veins, and that's when he tells her, he has a plan to rescue him. It's August, 1970. Sean Flynn and Dana Stone have been missing for four months. Dana's wife, Louise, just met with Johannes Dinesfeld, a Dutch explorer who had been held captive alongside her husband in Cambodia. He gives her promising news. He claims to have multiple contacts who could lead him to where Dana and Sean are being kept. Now, a thought does seem to run through Louise's mind. 
Johannes could have an ulterior motive for wanting to help. It's no secret that Sean Flynn is a celebrity. It's possible that Johannes is just looking for his 15 minutes of fame to become the man who risked his life to rescue the captured son of Errol Flynn. But Louise pushes the thought aside. She has nothing left to lose. She's finally found someone willing to take action. Come September, she gives Johannes 120 French francs, the equivalent of $143 today, and a case full of medical supplies. In return, he gives Louise two notes to send to his parents and a friend in case he never returns. She watches him ride off through the streets of Phnom Penh and disappear from view. Then comes the waiting. Three months pass without a word, and the war in Cambodia gets worse. Louise makes the difficult decision to leave, likely for her own safety. She can't wait for Johannes any longer. If he comes back with Sean and Dana, she makes sure that he knows where to find her. Better to wait a little longer than not to be alive for the reunion. She goes to an apartment in Saigon, where she has the protection of the Vietnamese government. Soon after, she meets a retired government official who used to work as a psychic advisor, and she asks to speak with him. Now, I don't know if Louise ever believed in psychics before this moment, but I can understand what living in a constant state of not knowing is like. I can tell you it feels like being addicted to finding any information that could be relevant. And it requires faith to keep going. Louise shows the man photos of her husband and Sean, hoping it will help his psychic intuition. In response, he tells her that Sean is fine, but Dana experienced danger, and he might not live through the year. But when Louise shows the man a picture of Johannes Dinesfeld and asks whether or not she should trust him, the psychic acknowledges the photo and says, this man is dead. 48 hours later, Louise learns the psychic was right. Johannes had teamed up with a group of communist soldiers and was killed in a government ambush. Eventually, a reporter shares the contents of Johannes's diary with Louise. It's riddled with contradictions. Johannes spoke to one soldier who claimed that the Viet Cong had killed all the journalists they captured. Another told him that they died after American bombs fell on their hideout. No entries mention Sean or Dana by name, but Johannes does make a reference to a mission, which was presumably the one he tried to carry out for Luis. Seemingly, he really was trying to help her husband. Now, at this point, Louise has been searching for nine months. She's living in a perpetual limbo. Her emotions are being thrown from one extreme to the other. One day her husband's alive, the next he's dead. Eventually, Louise can't stomach being in Southeast Asia any longer. She packs her bags and flies home to be with her family again. A family she hasn't seen in over a year. As time goes on, Louise can't even bring herself to take a vacation. She's afraid she'll miss any updates about her husband. She clings onto the news, watching as more and more journalists are released from communist camps, battered but alive. Sean Flynn and Dana Stone are never among them. 
In time, the search to find out what happened to Sean and Dana is picked up by a friend and fellow photojournalist named Tim Page. Tim met Dana and Sean during the Vietnam War. Sean and Tim were particularly close. When Tim was injured in an explosion in Saigon, Sean flew back from a job in Laos to be by his side as he recovered. By the late 80s, early 90s, the dust of the Vietnam War has started to settle. Cambodia has been recovering from the brutal reign of the now-defunct Khmer Rouge, and Tim Page has returned to Chi Po to see what else he can dig up on his friends. After speaking with locals and Cambodian informants, Page learns that Sean and Dana were transported between several communist camps during their captivity. They were closely monitored at headquarters run by Khmer Rouge. In the eyes of their captors, they were the embodiments of the capitalist ideals that they were fighting to destroy. So, they were given half rations, denied protein, and were only allowed to eat rice and a little fruit. Ultimately, they didn't survive. It's not the ending anyone hoped for, but Tim also uncovers a gravesite. Villagers lead him to the place where Sean and Dana were supposedly buried. Tim has the remains excavated and sends teeth and bone fragments back to a forensic expert in Wales. When the results come back, he learns that the remains belong to a tall man and a short man, both who died 20 years prior. But a decade later, improved DNA testing reveals the bones belong to two completely different foreigners who had also gone missing in Southeast Asia. And as far as I can tell, there haven't been any major updates about Sean and Dana's disappearance since. Their loved ones are still without answers. And Sean Flynn and Dana Stone's disappearance is one of the most well-documented missing person cases to take place during the Vietnam War. I can tell their story because there is information to go on. That's in part owed to Sean Flynn's celebrity status. I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. There's inequity in which missing person case gets coverage and which don't. It's also because of the fierce dedication of their loved ones, like Louise Stone and Tim Page. But I want to end today's story by acknowledging the many thousands of people whose stories I will never be able to tell. In the Vietnam War alone, more than 2,500 Americans and 300,000 Vietnamese went missing. I know it's hard to grasp those numbers. They were more than soldiers. They were children, farmers, doctors, and journalists. Mothers, fathers, sons, daughters. Sean and Dana went to Vietnam to expose the atrocities of war, to document the casualties, the lack of humanity. They believed if they could capture the horrors, they could convince the world to put an end to the war once and for all. next episode. It's been called The Crime of the Century. When a 20-month-old child of a famous aviator is kidnapped, pure chaos ensues. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found two of the missing by Perry Dean Young to be incredibly helpful to our research. 
If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.